name is Dima, it's my wife Tala. You nice can to meet you. All say good morning, Dima and Tala. <laughs> okay. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. The word of God for the people of God. And now it was Ukrainian. Bless you. Uh, від Марка, 12 глава, з 13-го вірша. І вони вислали деяких із фарисеїв та іродіян до нього, щоб зловити на слові його. Ті ж прийшли та й говорять йому, «Учителю, знаємо ми, що ти справедливий, і не зважаєш зовсім ні на кого, бо на людське обличчя не дивишся, а наставляєш на Божу дорогу правдиво. Чи годиться давати податок для кесаря, чи ні? Давати нам, чи не давати?» А Ісус, знавши їх лицемірство, сказав їм, «Чого ви мене випробовуєте? Принесіть мені гріш податковий, щоб бачити». І принесли вони. І він каже до них, «Чий це образ і напис?» Ті ж йому відказали, «Кесарів». Ісус тоді каже у відповідь тім, «Віддавайте кесареве кесареві, а Богові Боже». І дивувалися вони з нього. Слово Боже для Божих людей. Амінь. If you're with us this summer here at Seoul, we are reading the scripture, public proclamation of the scripture, before we go into our sermon uh, in the book of Mark. And it's really important to us as a community. As we've come out of our Essentials series, we want to do two things. We want to be able to obey the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, Paul exhorts Timothy. He says, Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of scripture. And so we want to do that as a community, read the scripture. At the same time, and over the course of the last couple of weeks, as we read the scripture, we also have a vision of Revelation 7, of every tribe, of every tongue, of every nation, glorifying our creator. And that this end apocalyptic vision that John has of what this community, this Christian community looks like is every tribe, every tongue, every nation. English speakers, Ukrainian speakers. I mean, when I look in this community here and now, the, the corners of our globe are represented here. And the cool thing about Christianity is that the, the, the center of Christianity has moved all around the world for over, over the course of the last 2,000 years. What started as a Jewish off uh, or offshoot religion with this Messiah who's claiming to be God in, in the Middle East, slowly migrated its way up and throughout the Roman Empire, made its way into North Africa where it took a foothold. And as time uh, rolled on, Christianity ends up at every corner of the globe, the center of the Christian faith now not being in Rome, not being in the Middle East, but probably somewhere in Central Africa or South America. 
that there are Christians in this community from every corner of the globe. And as, a, and as a church, we have the opportunity to experience one another as we read the same scripture, the word of God for the people of God. And we'll continue. And you'll probably hear a couple more languages and, and see a couple languages as well, which will be a cool thing uh, coming up this summer. Uh, but I thank you for, for reading the word for us, Tala and Dima, this morning. We are in Mark chapter 12. I should say, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy to preach the scripture. We're in the book of Mark, having come out in June, May and June, of a series where we explored essential Christian doctrine. We go back into the book of Mark, where we left off kind of around Easter time, and here we are taking it passage by passage. This is generally how we preach. We take a book of the Bible, and we just teach through it. This passage, into the next one, and into the next one, because we can't skip anything that way. If the word of God is truly for the people of God, then we have to confront everything that's in the word of God. And so today we find ourselves talking about taxes. It's good. Anyone seen that meme of that kid playing Monopoly? It's a little video. He's playing Monopoly and his mom's recording him. This guy's seen it because he's dying already. If not, just look up Monopoly taxes video when you have some time. And it's this little kid crying about how taxes are the worst part of the game. And if you've ever paid taxes, which you do every time you make a purchase, there's a PST and GST on there, never mind your income tax, you know taxes are the worst part of the game, right? But today, here we are, talking about taxes. Taxes. A little context. Let's set the stage. We're in Mark chapter 12. But we've been in this section for a number of weeks. We've been in Mark 11, 12, and we're going to be in 13 uh, for the next couple weeks as well. And what, what is taking us months to get through happens all in a day. It happens all on a Tuesday in the temple. And so this is important for us to recognize. So last week, Pastor Andrew was taking us through the text. He was taking, he told this parable of the vineyard, if you remember. And if not, go back, YouTube, Spotify, Apple Music, go find it. Contextually, it's key. There's this parable, and at the end, these tenants in the vineyard are killed, and then the religious rulers have this awakening that, oh, Jesus is talking about us. Like, our days are numbered. And so they leave this interaction with Jesus, and they leave it with the intention of finding a way to have him arrested. How do we catch Jesus so that what he has spoken about us does not come to pass? So it's the chief priests in chapter 12, verse 12. It's the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders who look for a way to arrest him because they're afraid of the crowds. The crowds are following Jesus. Jesus is moving through the temple. He's talking. They're having conversations, and people are drawn magnetically to Jesus. And then he starts speaking out against the people in charge who get very uncomfortable about what he's saying, and this is just confrontation and conflict brewing. Go back to when all this started, which in the text is just like two days ago. Jesus riding in on Palm Sunday into Jerusalem. And we said he is there in confrontation. He is confronting the religious authorities. He is confronting the political powers at play. Jesus is a revolutionary. But as we see in a moment, his revolution is not the revolution that we would expect. And so, in chapter, or in ver chapter 12 and verse 12, we see that they sent, so these people who went away looking for Jesus to get arrested, mostly religious leaders, they go away, 
and they send some people to Jesus. So imagine it. This is just a little while later, the text tells us. So Jesus goes, tells this parable. They're like, oh my goodness, he's talking about us. We go away, have a little team huddle. We circle around back and we say, okay, we're going to send our boys to go have a conversation with Jesus. Let's trap this guy before he can say anything else crazy. And so who do they send? The Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. Mark is giving us the intentions of the religious rulers. Why have the Pharisees and the Herodians gone to Jesus? To trap him. Now, who are the Pharisees? Pharisees are, 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 are a Jewish, Jewish religious group, generally conservative. At this time, they believed in the, the written word, the Torah, but they also believed in the oral tradition that had been passed through the Jews. Now, the generally a conservative group of people, which means that they don't like the fact that Rome is in Israel telling them what to do. Now, on the flip side, we have the Herodians. These two are Jewish people, but they are allied with Herod. And now if you go way back in the book of Mark, when we were talking about Herod and the beheading of John the Baptist, and you would know that Herod is a Jewish ruler but he is instated and backed up by the oppressive Roman government. The Roman government that has come in, taken the land, and said we need kind of proxy rulers over the area. And so Herod only has authority. He's not even a king. The, 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 remember, if you go back to the beheading of John the Baptist, Mark's kind of mocking him by calling him King Herod. He's not even a king, but he has some weird sense of authority. But he's only granted this sense of authority because Rome is okay with it. Rule your people as we rule you. And so what we have is religious conservatives and sellouts to the Roman Empire, kind of political cronies, who are weirdly together approaching Jesus. These two groups that are listed side by side are not friends. They're not friends. It's like having well, I have a number of brothers, three brothers, and when I was growing up, specifically with my older brother, we liked to fight, like, fizz, like fist fight and like physical fight. I remember one time there was this kid at my school, and he was like taking martial art classes, and he like taught me something, so I was like, now I got this move in the back of my head, and then I remember my brother went to kick me, and I used this move, which was just grabbing his foot and lifting up, and then he was flat on his back. Now, he beat me up 99% of the time, my older brother, but I got him this one this one time. As brothers, we were always in conflict with each other, you know, over all sorts of things, but surely these physical wrestling matches and confrontations when we were young. But that all changed when there was bullying on the playground. We were one grade apart from each other, and there was a, a, a whole host of bullying that was going on, like fist fights and all sorts of things. And I remember that my enemy, my brother, in the basement as we wrestled, all of a sudden became my closest ally because we were unified on the playground with another enemy. You know what I'm saying? So my brother, and you might know this, this like visceral sibling reaction. It's like, I get to beat him up or he gets to beat me up. Nobody else gets in on this. And so this is what's at play here. We have the Pharisees and the Herodians. They don't like each other. They're, they, they're, they're, they're a weird partnership. But they have a common enemy. Because Jesus has come to confront the religious and confront the political. There's some things going on here. And they both see Jesus as a threat. So for this moment, they are unified, sharing a common enemy.
verse 14, they came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. They're buttering him up. It's, it's butter him up 101. Like, you need to get your way, so say some nice things about him. Jesus, the man of integrity. Like, you, you only care about God and God's truth. And of course, we know their motivations because Mark is letting us in on it the whole way through. Their intent is not to, to praise Jesus for all the good that he has done. Their intent is to trap him. And Jesus, you know, being the son of God and no fool, he sees this. So continuing in verse 14, after they praise him, they ask him the question, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? Okay, Jesus, butter you up. Now this is a yes or no answer. You see, they put the question twice. Like, is, 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 should we do this? Shouldn't we or should we? Jesus, pick one. And what are they doing? They're setting Jesus up for failure. Because Jesus now has one of two options, right? They, they've made it very clear. You must pick one, Jesus, as Jews underneath an oppressive Roman imperial government that reigns over us, should we pay this tax? Now, what tax are they referring to? Specifically to a head tax for subjects, not for Roman citizens, but for subjects. If Rome comes in and conquers you, they count you all up, take a census, count you all up, and then say, this is the tax rate based on how many people there are. You must pay this annual tax to us uh, as a privilege of us conquering you. You know what I'm saying? And they're saying, they conquered us. Should we be paying them this tax? Should we be paying this specific head tax to Rome? Jesus with one of two options. If he says, yes, pay the tax to Rome, then the crowds that are following him with this sense of religious fervor and zeal go, uh, excuse me, Jesus, what? You want us to pay the tax to those who have conquered us? That does not make sense. That is not a revolutionary statement, Jesus. That does not upend the political powers like you're going to do. Fresh in their memory from about 30 years earlier was a revolt movement in Israel of those who did not pay the tax. They made it a claim. We're not going to pay the tax. We're actually going to rebel. Judas the Galilean was his name. And then what happened? We actually don't know what happens to Judas the Galilean, but Rome makes a, a, a and recorded in, in Jewish history, Rome makes a display of his sons. They kill all his kids. We assume they probably killed him too. You don't pay the tax. It's fresh in the memory. You die. Rome kills you. So do we pay the tax, Jesus? Well, if we do pay the tax, you're not a revolutionary. You're probably not worth following. They know that the crowds won't follow Jesus. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, then the Herodians got him. Again, the Herodians, they're in partnership with Rome. They support Herod, who is only supported by the Roman government. And if you do pay, or, or, or if you don't pay the tax, Rome's going to say, why aren't you paying the taxes? Fresh in the memory of what happens to people who don't pay the taxes, you die. So either Jesus dies, or he's very unpopular and probably no longer a problem for the religious and political rulers. This is how Jesus has been set up. Verse 15, though. Jesus comes in 
or actually Mark tells us, Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Jesus sees right through it. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. He sees them for what they are. They're trying to pigeonhole him into making a statement that's going to get him in trouble. Why are you trying to trap me? What's going on with you? And then he asked them, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. This coin, the denarius, is probably the size of your fingernail. And on this coin, two sides, much like our, like think of a dime, okay? Think of a dime. Nice skinny piece of silver. It's probably not real silver. It's probably nickel plated or something like that. But this is what it is. And instead of the queen on one side, it actually has the emperor's mother or presumably the emperor's mother. And in the inscription around it, it says high priest or high priestess. On the flip side of the coin, there is, just like our coins may have the queen, I don't know. Do they change that to the king? You don't know either. Okay, cool. That's a conversation for another, another time. Uh, on the flip side, we have Caesar. We have Tiberius. He is the emperor reigning in Rome. And the inscription says, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So Caesar Augustus, or if you know your Roman history, I believe that's Octavian, who begins to rule the Roman Empire and then moves forward, has a son, Tiberius. Tiberius' stepmother is on one side of the coin. Tiberius Caesar is on the other. And we have this moment here where the inscription reads, Son of the Divine Augustus. Son of the Divine. So on one side you have a face, and it says Son of God on it, more or less. And on the other side you have his stepmother, and it says High Priest. Now why is this at all significant? There's something going on in the text in this verse here. Why does Jesus not have a copy of the coin? He has to ask them, present me the coin that you were talking about. Like this coin that we have to pay the tax with. Give me a copy of it. I don't have one. Let's see what we're really talking about here. If, you, if we remember anything about your grade 8 history class, I think that's where we cover the curriculum on ancient Greece and Rome, in Manitoba at least you would know that when we talk about the emperor, we're not just talking about the equivalent of our prime minister. We're not just talking about somebody who's over there who holds the power and authority. I mean, we are, but that's not it. Because around the emperor, we have what's known as the emperor cult. We, we, it's not just that there's this person who's in charge. It's that there is this person who's in charge, and they are either like God or God. And we actually have temples. We have worship practices. We have temple prostitutes. We have all sorts of things as we not just give our, our allegiance, political allegiance to the emperor, but our religious allegiance to the emperor. I mean, if you watch any documentary on cults on Netflix, you would know that there's not just a political allegiance to the cult leader. There's this religious fervor that surrounds the cult leader. And when we talk about the Roman imperial cult, we are talking about worshiping the emperor, worshiping the Caesars. And so what is this coin then? It, it is 
a form of currency with which we pay taxes, but it's also a portable idol, isn't it? Because on one hand, you have the face of the one in whom we're supposed to worship, and it, it, and it reminds us that he is the son of the divine Augustus, that, that he is divine. He's not just a political ruler. He is the one that we are subject to in every area of our life. But on the flip side, we have his stepmom, who's the high priest of this whole thing, who's another maybe uh, religious figure within this imperial cult network. What's going on here is that these coins are idols. And Jesus is very aware of this in Jewish teaching. There is the prohibition against making graven images. The Jews didn't know, largely, under Roman oppression, what to do with these coins. What do we do with this? Because this is an idol representing a false god. So it's not just political persecution that Israel's under. It's also religious persecution. Now, they had a sense of freedom to continue to practice. After all, Jesus is where? He's in the temple. There's Jewish religious practices that are continuing. But why doesn't Jesus have the coin? Because why would Jesus carry around an idol of a false god? But who does have the coin? The Herodians and the Pharisees. And Jesus is making a mockery of them by asking for the coin. You impious fools. You carry around an idol to a false god who has no power. I mean, think about it. Jesus, the true son of God, the true high priest, as the scripture says, what is he doing? He's holding this coin in the temple. And, and what, what a juxtaposition at play. The true son of God holding the coin that references the son of God, who's truly not the son of God, who is just a mere man, the true high priest holding the coin that references some other high priest. I don't think the irony is lost on anyone because at the end of the passage, this is the only time in the book of Mark where Jesus' enemies are amazed. They leave and they are amazed. There's a lot going on here, but Jesus has made a fool of them by asking them for the coin. Jesus' reply to them, right? Whose image is this and whose inscription? It's Caesar. And Jesus says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. Z. Let Caesar have his idols, his worthless coins that mean nothing. Give him his idols. Give him this little pinky-sized coin. Cool. Pay your taxes. But give to God that which is created in his image. Go back with us in our essential series when we were talking about human personhood. We were talking about what does it mean to be a human. And we started off in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, where God created humanity in his image, where you, sitting here today, are a divine image bearer created in the image of God. We had a whole conversation. You can go back on the podcast. It's, it's number three in the series, personhood. You should listen to it. You're created in the image of God. Give to Caesar that which is created in his image, these little coins. Give to God that which is created in his, in his image. Pay your taxes. Give God your life, is what Jesus is saying. They've tried to say, Jesus, you either choose yes, pay your taxes, don't pay your taxes. 
and there's going to be consequence for either one. We're going to trap you, Jesus. But Jesus doesn't play the game. He doesn't play the game. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give your life to your creator. Why, why was there a Jewish prohibition against making graven images? Because God already has. He has made you an image of himself. He has made you. So don't make any other images. He's made you. Divine image bearer. My son, when Zion was first born, um, I was probably studying, you know, personhood or the image of God when I was in school and Zion was born. But whenever I would enter Zion into a room, I would carry him. He was just like a little potato baby. And I'd just prop him up. And I, it was just my wife and I in the home that you can get a sense of our dynamic. And I would just say, behold, the divine image bearer. And my wife would roll her eyes. But this is the right idea. Behold the divine image bearer, Kyle. Behold the divine image bearer, Diane. Behold the divine image bearer, each one of you in this room today. Jesus is understanding this. So maybe let's just boil this down. We've worked our way through the text. What does it mean to give back to God what is God's? What does it mean to give back to God what is God's? This is like every Sunday in the book of Mark is exactly this. Like we're talking about this, this question. And so uh, um, I, I'll do this briefly. What does it mean to give back to God what is God's? Jesus, if Jesus is Lord of your life, makes a claim upon your life. If he is who he says he is, and you choose to make that declaration, Jesus is Lord. I am a Christian. He makes a claim upon you. And that claim changes the person you are. No longer are you there earning your identity, but you are receiving your identity from who Christ says you are. That you receive the grace that is given to you freely, the grace that is not opposed to effort, but is opposed to earning. You remember all this? So what does it mean to give back to God what's God's? To live a life in obedience and in submission to him. To live a life of service to others. And maybe just to summarize all this, the best place that I can go with this is in the same chapter, and we're going to address it in one, two weeks from now. But go with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 30 and onwards. The teachers of the law, this is, this is in the same context here, they come to Jesus, and there's this debate going on, and, and they say, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? So Jesus breathes these words moments, moments after what we just read, and he says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is, is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. What does it mean to give back to God what is God's? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And love the people that he has put in your path. This is what it means. What does it mean to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's? And I mean, like for us today, we're like, we get it, Jesus. We give up the coin, give it back to him. It's his idol. It's his graven image. That's fine. 
But, but what does it mean for us today to give back to Caesar what is Caesar's? I mean, I could probably say with like a decent degree of confidence, just pay your taxes. It's okay. Pay your taxes. You, you know, you drive on the roads, your taxes fund the roads, you can complain about the roads. I mean, I talk about roads to this congregation. I never hear as much feedback about a sermon as when I talk about the roads. It's funny. We don't come here to talk about the state of our roads, Winnebagers. <laughs> Let's use a different example. Pay your taxes, funds your health care. It funds, I mean, every, every political issue here that I'm going to navigate into is just going to be sticky, isn't it? You want to talk about education, education reform, healthcare, healthcare reform? What do we want to talk about this morning? How about the Word of God? Okay, cool. <laughs> Give him what belongs to him. Okay, pay your taxes. Pay your taxes. Give him what belongs to him. But your allegiance is limited. Give Caesar what is Caesar's, but your allegiance is limited. If you are created in the image of God, then you don't get to give your whole self to Caesar because you give your whole self to God. Your political allegiance is limited. You don't marry yourself to a political party and allow that political party to become your God. But pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what Caesar's. Okay, let's maybe get a little bit more into this here. If Jesus is a revolutionary, and he truly is, He's confronting as he comes into Jerusalem. He goes right to the temple. He drives out the money changers. There is conflict and tension and stress. The temple is brimming with tension at this point on Tuesday. If Jesus is a revolutionary who has come to confront the corrupt political powers, and he has come to confront the corrupt religious system or the religious system that points people further away from God, and he's saying, I am here, it is me, Hello, son of God. We think of revolutions in the sense of power brings about violence, brings about change. I mean, what, three weeks ago in Russia, we had this mini revolution on their way to Moscow. And what did they do on the way? People died. We think of it, violence and power brings about change. Jesus' revolution is the exact opposite. Because it ends with the giving up of power that doesn't bring about violent overthrow. It brings about true, real, and lasting peace. Jesus is a revolutionary, yes, but, but of the sort that we have no understanding of. So when he says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, sure, pay your denarius. But at the end of the day, you don't serve Caesar. Because to say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar is not. Caesar is not the divine son. So your political allegiances need to stop somewhere. Say, okay, let's just like get right into what everyone's thinking. Like, what does this really mean for us today about politics? Can we go there? Can we talk about politics for a minute? Oh, geez. Whew. I'm sweating. Are you? Uh, I, I think it's fair to say, as we take a passage like this and we say, what's Jesus saying? Like, we're wrestling through this together. He's got to have a word to us today. If it's the word of God for the people of God, there has to be a word for us today here about politics and maybe political allegiances. <laughs> and I'm going to suggest to you, Soul Sanctuary, that Jesus does not support or endorse a political party. And I think this is evident in this passage. He, he's saying, pay your taxes to Caesar, but you belong to God. 
no one else has a claim over you. And in my experience, you know, it's funny. I ran into a handful of people from our church campaigning. I went to the grocery store and they were outside the grocery store kind of rallying up. And there are a whole bunch of people that are sitting here today. They're politically campaigning. It was great. I was like, this is, this is it. I'm going to suggest in my experience, as we engage first with Christ, as we give our lives to God, give back our lives to God, as this text says, as Jesus instructs, that we actually probably get more political. We don't marry ourselves to political parties, but what we do have, and in my experience, many politically oriented Christians in this community, it's all great and good. We think the church shouldn't say anything about politics, but I think when you meet Christ, you're probably a, a, the you become the politician or the politically active person that our society needs. Because when you meet Christ, you can't look at that person as your enemy anymore. You can't look across the aisle and say, I'm not going to work with you. You can't look across the aisle and say, you have nothing to say to me and I have nothing to say to you because our political allegiances are different. Because when you become a Christian, you realize that there is a much bigger issue going on in my own heart than there is from that outside force. So what does this do? It causes you to be reflective. And I actually think it causes you to be a better collaborator. Because you recognize that they can't be my enemy, even though we might stand on opposite ends of the aisle or opposite ends of an issue. So here's the thing. Whether you want to talk about civic politics or municipal or federal, whatever it might be, when it comes to politicking and positions and platforms and stances, there are remnants of the gospel or vestiges of the gospel in the platforms of each political party. And there might be more in this one or more in that one or a different balance here and there. But at the end of the day, O oh Christian, your allegiance is to God, not to the party. So some of you are going to vote on the right hand of the spectrum. Some of you are going to vote right in the middle. Some of you are going to vote on the left hand of the political spectrum. But however you vote, you don't go in, maybe you, maybe you are a card-carrying member of that party, but you don't go in with your principal identity being a card-carrying member of that party. You go in with your principal identity being that of a follower of God who has given back to God what is God's, which is your whole life. And so you will love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And then you will do whatever is in your power and ability within your political realm of influence. Maybe that's just your vote. You're going to do whatever you can do to love your neighbor as yourself. And we're going to disagree about how best to love our neighbor as ourselves. And that's why we have this thing called democracy. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good innovation compared to what most of human history has had. We get to wrestle it through with each other. But as a follower of Christ, your primary allegiance is to the Lord. And as he transforms you, you don't see anyone else as your enemy. You recognize that the wickedness and the need of transformation is in your heart, not theirs. And then you compassionately enter into dialogue and conversation, and you bring a light to our political spheres that just simply isn't there. I think a lot of people think that Christians just need to, to like be centrist or, or to just to be silent on issues of politics. Hey, man, if you want to politic, go for it. But do it understanding who you are and whose you are. Do it understanding 
that you are made, you are the divine image bearer, made in the image of God to do what? To shine his light to the world. Taking no position on anything I don't think is helpful because I think as you learn to live and think and love like a Christian, then your political endeavors, your political efforts are transformed. And it's not an easy world to be a Christian in politics. Politics, Not here in Canada, that's for sure. But as we understand who we are and whose we are, as we learn to live, think, and love like followers of Jesus, the reality in which we find ourselves, the spheres of influence, can become progressively transformed by the love of Christ as he is continually active in our world today. Who are you? You are one bought by the blood of the Lamb, by the Savior, Jesus Christ. You are commissioned to carry his message to the corners of the world. You are called to love the Lord first, above any other allegiance, your allegiance to Caesar or to anyone else. Love the Lord your God first, to love those that he created. So go out and be. Be, be the heralds of his kingdom, the kingdom of God that Jesus came to establish right throughout this book of Mark. He's talking about a new way, a way of a kingdom where revolutionary power looks like self-sacrifice that brings peace. The way of the kingdom where the first are last and the last are made first. The way of God's kingdom. Uh, soul Sanctuary. In times of old, the one giving a blessing would extend hands, and those receiving a blessing would do likewise. If you would like a blessing, a benediction, a word for you from Scripture as you go, I invite you just to extend your hands in a posture of reception. Soul Sanctuary, listen to what the Lord says. He has shown you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. For the kingdom of God is near. Yes, the kingdom of God through the resurrected Christ is here. So go from here in confidence, knowing that the, knowing that the love of God the Father, the grace of Jesus Christ, and the presence of the Holy Spirit goes with you. Be blessed, go in peace, and we'll see you next week.